Jacob 5 and the allegory of the olive tree is one of the great pieces of literature that we have in all of the scriptures. And yet it's almost impossible to begin to dive into Jacob 5 without looking at the chapters that precede it. Jacob very carefully lays out in Jacob 4 the reasons for the al- report, reporting the allegory and being able to go through and explain why it is that he was looking at what he was. The allegory is remarkable, but the run-up to it might be even more remarkable because it tells us what Zenos's purpose was and what he was trying to actually teach us about that allegory. Join us today as we talk about the run-up to the allegory and what it is that we need to learn from it. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed do not constitute official pronouncements of the Church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. All right. as we begin, I noticed, uh, by the way, the, uh, the recording of this class um, on, uh, on podcast, uh, somewhere in the next uh, week or so, we'll reach a thousand listens, a thousand views, which is pretty good. Okay, and again, I'm seeing listeners listening in from, gosh, Spain and Russia and all kinds of interesting places. So, so we're kind of reaching out. What's that? It could be. It could be the KGB. Yes. Who are these disruptive Mormon people in Texas? Yeah, we are a little bit scary. All right. Well, um, it's interesting how these things go. Um, As I settled in to uh, to uh, get ready to teach today on uh, Jacob chapter five, the allegory of the olive tree. Uh, I realized uh, a couple of things immediately. Uh, one, uh, I'm just, I have enough chutzpah to uh, say, okay, I'm going to change the name because I don't think the allegory of the olive tree completely explains what's going on in it. So I'm changing the name. I don't think it's codified in uh, the church handbook. Uh, the, so the allegory of the olive tree, I like the allegory of the love of God. Uh, is where I'm going with this. And then the other one, as I started looking at the run-up to that, uh, I realized there was so much rich stuff coming from Jacob in Jacob 4 in the run-up to Jacob 5. Uh, because always when you're looking at a, at a uh, parable or allegory or something, you always want to know what question prompted the story. So in order to get the this, this question that prompted the story, suddenly there was this deep richness that I just thought would be a little criminal if we just passed right over it. Um, 
which again is one of those reasons why I'm so grateful for this class. Because if this were a gospel doctrine class, you'd say, well, we got to do Jacob 5 because next week we're going to go on to the entire book of Isaiah. Here's something, you know. And then, and then right after that, you're going to do the, the entire book of Alma. You know, just the, the way the curriculum is set up, you just keep running. Well, with us, we go, well, if we want to take three weeks on Jacob 5, we can take three weeks. We'll just move at the pace that enables us to open this up. And that's, I'm grateful that we have this forum and this ability to do that. So that said, this is one of those times we have to remind ourselves too that when it comes to uh, reading the scriptures, we always got to be looking at context. What was going on? Who's writing to who? What's going? What is the background behind all of this? <coughs> and probably the most contextual of all of our scriptures is probably the Doctrine and Covenants simply because you got to know what was going on historically with the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, but this is interesting because contextually Jacob is going to use some things that the context is actually ancient Israel. And then he's going to be using that. So, so under context, let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. One, Nephi is going to tell us that the entire book is written in the language of my father, which consists of, always been fascinating, the learning of the Jews. So whenever we're looking at this, um, it's the learning of the Jews, it's what they know and how, and the language of the Egyptians. So we're taking how they teach, how they see the world, and then they're going to put it in Egyptian for shorthand. So it's more concise. It's easier to compile. Okay, yeah. So it's like Chinese limericks. <laughs> yes. Take the reader of the limerick and use Chinese characters and words to make it. That's right. That, that, that's right. So it would be this entire limerick, and it would be like three characters. Yeah. <laughs> so somewhere in there, that's probably a really good analogy about how that works, okay? Okay, so it's the learning of the Jews. Um, so in understanding the learning of the Jews, we've got to remember that the learning of the Jews is not just their learning, it's their style of how, how uh, the ancient world uh, taught. And they, and they taught, and Mormon was really kind of the master in his abridgment of teaching by contrast. I'm going to put this up against this. We're going to put Nephi up against Laman and Lemuel. We're going to put King Benjamin next to King Noah. We're going, you know, they're always saying, by, uh, as Joseph Smith said, by contraries is truth made manifest. So you, part of the style of, of the Jews is to do parallelism. And it's, all, and it's either going to be parallel the same thing or parallel contrast. Does that make sense? So again, I like the idea of the limerick thing is that we have a poetic style in mind that, that when we're reading a limerick, we always know that in the limerick, where's the, where's the uh, punchline? It'd be the very last one, right? We just know instinctively, oh, we're looking at a limerick. No, 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 laugh. Okay. Well, as we're, through always when we're looking at the Hebrew Bible, and to a certain extent, especially the first part of the Book of Mormon, they're writing heavily in here 
by contrast, by literary poem, and then by symbolism. And symbolism, uh, the allegory, the metaphor, the parable, all of these kind of things uh, is really pretty powerful. Okay? If, I'm, if I'm going to do the, uh, the allegory of the watermelon, <laughs> Whatever that would be, you'd already have a context of, oh, watermelon, I can picture it, I can taste it, I remember it, I've, you know, uh, so now anywhere I want to go with the parable of the watermelon, you'd be, re okay, we're all set. Now dive into that and we're ready to go, okay? Now, that's actually kind of a double-edged sword, though, as we're going to talk about this, that There's, there's such incredible power behind the symbolism can teach powerful truths quickly in a way that pure lecture of facts might not adequately. Uh, so anybody see the, uh, it was a little cloudy last night, but anybody see the eclipse, the lunar eclipse? Okay. There was a lunar eclipse last night. Now, if I wanted to teach today, you know, the parable of lunar eclipse... And, and you already have a sense of what light blocking another light might be and it's darkened and, you know, we'd just be ready to go with all that, wouldn't we? Okay? So, so it teaches, almost like that shorthand of the Egyptian or Chinese characters, there'd be a very fast way to teach some, some things. Um, now, there's a danger, though, always to symbolism. And the danger is that it can be misunderstood or twisted into uses that the authors did not intend. You can take symbolism too far. But if you're, if you're caught, if you're literal, so, so for instance, the Lord said to the Jews in, in Leviticus, I want you to put my, my, uh, the law and put it on your frontal parts kind of thing. Yeah, and so, and so what did they develop? The phylactery. The phylactery. So, so if we're going to pray, you're actually going to literally have that, put my law on your doorposts. And so, like, like if, you walk, if you walked into my office today, I have a little mezuzah on my doorpost, and you can walk in and kiss that thing. But the law is there. And I don't know that the Lord was necessarily saying, always put a mezuzah on your door. He was saying, you're going to walk into your place, keep that law in your heart or in your, your, in your mind. But they took it literal. Okay? Which sometimes is not bad because it's teaching a principle. But as we've talked about over and over, the problem with the Jews, and, we'll, and we'll, we're going to hit this again today, is that they got caught up in the literal symbol and they missed what it was symbolizing. They were staring at the sign and missing where, what it was tell, where it was telling them to go. Okay, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, we do the same today. With what? Well, just like the Jews were looking for Christ to come and liberate them from the Romans, we're looking for Christ today to come and pay our bills. Yeah, <laughs> because I paid tithing. Yeah, well, and, you know, the Jews back then, they, uh, their real problem wasn't the Romans. It was themselves, it yeah. was their hearts, their attitudes and stuff. And it's the same today. And that's why we have the gospel and the atonement and all of that, that we align ourselves with the real meaning of life. Yeah, yeah. That, that sometimes, 
again, we can get caught up in those things. So hang on to this idea, because man, does it jump out to us in a really big way. All right, so. Okay, things can be taken literal. Now, so if we're going to start, if we start diving into to Jacob 4, uh, he's going to end up using Jacob 5, the, the parable, uh, the, the allegory to teach what he wanted. But here's, here's what the lesson he's trying to get across. He says, for this intent we have written these things, that we, th that they, our children, may know what? We knew of Christ. When? Because if he's thinking, okay, this is going to be projected many years, and he's got a pretty good sense by this point of, we're hundreds of years down the road. This is like 600 years away. This is, okay, that's a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about taking things literal and they weren't meant literal, or taking things bigger than they were meant literal. Yeah. He gives us his intent, and that's not his intent. His intent isn't that the children would know that we knew. His intent is that the children would have the testimony so that they can. That's right. It wasn't just a historical fact we knew. Oh, well, that's very cool. They knew about Christ 600 years before. And I told you so. Yeah. Yeah, there is, a, there is something I'm wanting to get to here. And so there, there's this law here. And so if we knew this, then the next part is we need you not to just know that we had the knowledge. We, know, we need you to know that it affected us. How did it affect us? We had a hope in his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. Oh, well that's that's nice. But now but again, remember he's setting up the allegory. But also all the holy prophets which were before us, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name. And for this intent, what do we do? We keep the law of Moses. It pointing, and I love that, and I, this is so poetic. It pointing what? Our souls to him. The problem for the Jews at the time of Jesus, what did the law, and even for Paul, and Paul in his preaching runs into the same thing. What was the law of Moses for these people? The law. What did that represent? To me, I mean, I think it represented the stumbling law. Well, it did, yes. But to them? It was performance. Perform the law, you win. That's right. It was salvation. That, that by the law, we are saved. By the law, for those Jews at the time of Jesus, and even at the time of Hezekiah, now, we, the law is salvation. We keep the law, we live. We don't keep the law, we die. And so we can actually keep the law, do the performances, and then outside of that we can do whatever we want. Or we can twist the law, say we kept the law, but still starve the poor. Or keep, you know, stone the prophets. Why? Because they're threatening our income, but we're keeping the law. Maybe that's where they say, then, but we haven't we done this and haven't we done this? Sure. That's what Lamed and Lemuel were trying to say. 
why are you preaching against the Jews in Jerusalem? They keep the law, and because they keep the law, Jerusalem can never be conquered. It will be saved because they keep the law. What are you, why are you preaching destruction, Debbie Downer? <laughs> What's the deal here? Because he's saying, yes, there was a law, but the purpose of the law, he says, is to do what? Point our souls to the law, to, to, to Christ. Now, I do think it's interesting. Isn't this fascinating, though, that Jacob says, and we have other places, all the holy prophets which before us, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name. Until we got the pearl of great price, did we have that knowledge? Where in the scriptures do we find Noah believing in Christ? Where do we get in, in the Holy Bible as it existed at the time or the Septuagint? Where in any of that do we find Adam worshiping Christ? Worshiping the Father and that Christ was the way to do that. Where, where'd all that go? For the most part... Uh it becomes apparent after Christ is crucified and, and it is pointed out in the four Gospels as to what these Old Testament scriptures meant right. where these prophets were prophesying of Christ. But, but uh, for a non-prophet to read those scriptures, even up, up until Christ died, they wouldn't have necessarily... No, not necessarily. Or they saw it as the, a Messiah is coming and we'll put whatever spin we want on that. Okay. So, in other words, it was there. It's, it's kind of in code in Psalms. It's in code in Isaiah. It's in code in Daniel. It's in code. It's there. But, but as we're going to talk about, and, he, and that's what he's going to complain. Guys, that's not plain. We glory in plainness. Yes, the atonement is coming. It will be Christ that leads us to the Father and it ended up being obfuscated in code because they were, as we're going to talk about, they were looking beyond the mark. They wanted things more complicated. We don't like plainness. That's a little too stark. It's a little too plain. And so just keep in mind when, we, when the Book of Mormon talks about the fact that plain and precious truths are being torn out. And in our early understanding decades ago as I'm growing up, it's like, where did the plain and precious truths go? Well, that dang Catholic church, they ripped that thing out of there, you know, after it was there. And they, so it's them, it's them guys, and they done, uh, <laughs> the plain and precious truths were gone partly, partly before Hezekiah and Josiah. The Josiah and Purge did that in part, but we have no idea in the, even decades before, that that was disappeared somewhere. Always in the process, the plainness has been taken away. And when I think about the plain and precious part that has been taken out, to me, the simplest form of the gospel is the plan of salvation. Yeah. There was a creation, there was a fall, there will be a redemption. And when you go back and you look at the Old Testament, there's documentation of the creation, documentation of the fall, and all documentation of the redemption has been removed. It's gone. It's gone. Life. I know. It's this gap. Case okay, is yawing gap in here where this stuff and Jacob is saying hey we knew so he's not just saying hey look at us we're smart we got it he's saying they knew and he can read it he could read the brass plates he could read Isaiah 
He's, he's trying to say, we know it. They knew it. Where did it go? It's not here. It's plain. This is easy. But it's gone. And, and what a shame that is that it's gone because we understand it. And now, if we're going to have a, a knowledge of Christ and we're going to keep the law of Moses, what a powerful one-two punch. Because we know what the law of Moses was designed, where it was designed to take us. It wasn't going to be the law in and of itself. We, were re- we knew all along it wasn't just a Messiah to come, but it was a Christ that would come in the meridian of time. And the law of Moses taught us that. Yeah. So this is not a doctoral thesis, though. This isn't an academic thing where Jacob is saying, here, we're showing you we knew. It's a we knew and you can know too. And they didn't know. That's, that, that's exactly right. Uh, so, so what he's going to do then with this, and, and not, not only that, if you don't know, look at what happens to you. Jacob 5. <laughs> you know, if you don't understand where we're going here and why we had the law of Moses and our knowledge that we have, then, then your, de- your decision making will be off. Yeah. So one of the cool things I think about this is Jacob quotes Venus extensively. Yeah. And he attributes this allegory to Venus. And you can see elements of this allegory in the Bible. Oh, absolutely. There's no source document that everybody's referring to included in the Bible. Nope. No, they had this. Paul had it, and and, and Paul's and, and it's in Romans. Paul Paul quotes from it. It's cool, okay, uh, man. And I and we're going to touch on some of that next week, where we have the sense that this allegory was something that was known, in the same way that we know secondhand that they had the Dead Sea Scrolls and they were aware of what the Essenes were writing at Qumran. We have they, it surfaces from time to time, okay. All right, so. So in order to teach us about this, then, we're going to get, he, again, he's leading towards the allegory, what we've commonly known as the allegory of the olive tree, um, uh, which I'm going to call the allegory of God's love. But I love that picture. Uh, th- this is... One of the large trees, when you go to Gethsemane, there's the, there's the private garden that you can rent out for about an hour. And then there's the public garden. This is one of the trees in the public garden that you can walk around. And, and when you look at it, what's kind of cool about that, you get this massive trunk and a little bit of branches on top of that. What does that tell you? It's been pruned over and over and over. Yeah, that, 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 tree, that tree might be a thousand years old. It might be. Okay, because over the years, the trunk and everything, and they, and they always trim it out here. Uh, and so kind of keep that in mind here. Um, um, olive trees, they produce more olives if you cut them back. Yeah. So that's why they prune them so much. Yeah, and they're going to trim out the, the core so they get more, more sunlight coming in. Okay. Yeah, there's, boy, the, the olive culture is just fascinating. Okay, so let's do this. Um, uh, okay. One, one more element here. So I said, I just, the more you dug, the more I dug, the more 
great stuff. Just a reminder. Um, for just, so as we get ready to teach this, he's going to say, okay, who, if I'm one of these that are teaching this doctrine, I need, now we're going to set up this contrast. Okay? And he's going to say, let's go back to Second Nephi. He's going to say, Behold, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, having been called of God and ordained after the manner of his holy order. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Hmm. I've been called after this holy order and having been consecrated by my brother Nephi, whom you look at as a king or protector, Whoops. Gosh, what order are we talking about? Isn't that cool? Yeah. I just find it interesting that Jacob considers that he was consecrated by Nephi. Nephi can't consecrate Jacob. Jacob is the only person that can consecrate Jacob. Yeah, yes, that's right. So he's talking about the, the word, the wording may be off, but, but he's talking about I am now part of an order. Yes. What order? Or what order are we talking about? Priesthood, Priesthood for sure. <coughs> Priesthood for sure. Look what he says in, in Jacob 4. Wherefore, we search the prophets, as opposed to these guys I'm going to tell you about, and we've had many revelations in the spirit of prophecy, having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becomes unshaken. What happens when they do this? He's going to say, a very interesting thing happens. Insomuch that we can truly command in the name of Jesus, and what happens? And the very trees obey us. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> this is not about ants. Sorry. The very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. Which order are we talking about here? Power. The, um, the order of... Who do we know from the scriptures could obey the... Ma uh, talk to the mountains, the seas? Enoch. There we go. The order of Enoch. Does that make sense? That in other words, that they have that level of sealing power. We're going to see Nephi the third get that as well. Okay, but but in other words, this comparison and contrast. These Jews that I'm going to tell you about got stumbling along in plainness because they rejected the plainness. Over here, we simply trusted in Christ. We had great hope in His coming, and guess what happened? We were ordained to an order that gave us some sealing power and control that they didn't have. Wow. Wow, that's kind of cool. Okay? So he said, this is who we are. Yeah. But they didn't get that by, by the scriptures. They got that through compliance with the gospel. Yep. And through proving to God that they would do everything that he wanted them to do. And nothing that he didn't want them to do. And I'm going to show you a group of people who couldn't get that through their thick skulls. Mm. Because it, this was possible. Do you think we're special? No, this is available to everybody. Joseph Smith said that nothing had been revealed to him that wouldn't be revealed to every Latter-day Saint if they simply would do what they were supposed to do. 
And, and he's going to say, these Jews didn't get it. We did. And, and uh, you don't get a sense of, and we're special. He's just saying, this is what's available. If you, if you live the law of Moses with the intent that it'll point your souls towards Christ. And, and, and again, Jacob 5 is going to be the message that says, is it too late for those guys? Can they still, can they still turn this around? And the answer is going to be yes. All right, so. What does it take then to have that kind of potential power? And he says, here's what it was for us. For why not speak of the atonement of Christ? He says in four. The Spirit speaketh of things as they really are and of things as they really will be. And, and sometimes we get caught up in... Th th think about times I, 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 I tease my clients a lot of times about that they have very active awfulizers. And no matter what's going to happen in their life, their awfulizer will kick in and make it much worse. Always. It will be awful. Okay? And there's not, nothing will make you more depressed and anxious than an overactive awfulizer. <laughs> and he's trying to say, no, no, guys, why not speak of the atonement of Christ? Because the Spirit speaking of things as they really are. He really is coming. Uh, and, and that can affect you now, 600 years from the time he's actually going to come. And we, 600 years, we had a hope in this Christ. And because of that, look at what we did. Look at what we were able to accomplish. And these things are manifested unto us plainly. This we would say this isn't rocket science. That, that, that's a metaphor, right? Rocket science means only really smart people can do rocket science. We say, this is manifested unto it. We got it. We understood. It's plain. Now, it's not so plain in Psalms and Isaiah and stuff like that. And we'll talk about that in a second. But why is plainness so hard? Wouldn't plainness be easier? We think it should be more complicated. Why do we want it more complicated? It strokes our ego. To, we yeah. A little bit. We had a parallel with uh, Come Follow Me this week, and you, and you might have got it in Gospel Doctrine. We were talking about the brazen serpent. Yeah. It was simple, but... And these guys, and, and later Book of Mormon prophets like Alma was going to say, all you got to do is look. Just look. You got bit. Go look. And they wouldn't do it because of it was too easy. We wanted more com complex thing. We're going to talk about looking beyond the mark in just a second. They were looking beyond the mark. Yeah. yeah. So the problem with plainness is it doesn't leave enough room for rationalization. <laughs> it doesn't leave enough room for rationalization. I no, I want my rationalization. I want my good explanation. <laughs> no, that th that's really good. Yeah. 
lot of times we make things difficult because we don't really understand it. Um, I remember that Eisenhower, when he was in charge of you know World War II, so to speak, uh, his generals and people would bring him plants, and they would be huge. And he would shove them back at the beginning of the war. They got the message pretty quick. And he said, if you can't tell me what you want in a half a page or less, you don't yes. really understand. And so uh, I think that we have these ideas and stuff in our head, but they are kind of complicated, and we try to express them. But we just don't understand it well enough. It's not deep enough in us. Well, we really do, you know, and uh, I mean, and I think that's the mark of a really good teacher. They can take something that's complex and make it and, and, make, it, and make it plain and make it simple, yeah. right? But but isn't it interesting? They can make it simple, but there are a lot of people that don't want it simple. They don't want it plain. That would be too easy. That's too simple, or I'm too smart for that. Yeah. I'm more educated than that. I need it to be more complicated. Well, yeah, Naaman, yeah. Naaman came up as part of this. Okay, the children of Israel look at that and they say, and, and by the way, that for the children of Israel, I was pointing this out in the class yesterday, is for the children of Israel. So, so they create the brazen serpent, and they just have to look at the the brass serpent, and so. A thousand years later, after that, they take that same brass serpent and they put that in the temple, and it's part of it's it's there in the in the the temple of Solomon. And under Hezekiah, what does Hezekiah have to do with that brazen serpent? He has to destroy it. It says that he took it, he crushed it, and he and he threw the threw it out into the Kidron Valley. Why? They were worshiping it. In other words, rather than looking at the brazen serpent as this points our soul to Christ, they begin to idolize the serpent itself. Okay? And, and l l let me say this very carefully. I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we can do this in the church and look at a leader and make them the, the source of the power rather than saying they are a conduit for, the, for Christ. Yeah. Part of, I think, the problem is that we don't want to be common. We want to be special. I'm smarter than that. And, and so it's not good enough to be simple. I want to add complications because I can do those complications. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think we can really get caught in that. Wendy? What if a different perspective? What if it's we want more information and the plainness is too plain? You know, like when we get answers to our prayers, sometimes we want more information of, why or how or what should we do going forward um, and we have to rely on faith so sometimes plainness is a little frustrating because we want more well, it, I don't know if we've ever been to that place of here comes general conference and you go what did you learn from general conference keep the commandments <laughs> oh come on God, there's got to be more stuff yeah. right? Yeah, right. t tell us when we're going to Missouri yeah. Right, not in a prideful way, but just yeah, give me, no give me more. Give me more. Yeah, rather than the old saying. They said repent. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking why he teaches to the children. It's, it's the children understand him. Yeah, they do. Like they get it. Simple. And when you're childlike, you get it. If you humble yourself and think as a child, you learn as a child. I, I, I was watching a clip from... Uh, 
from Forrest Gump. You guys remember that Forrest Gump? And there's this wonderful moment in, in, in the movie with Forrest Gump where he's in the army. <laughs> and he says, uh, and the sergeant says, uh, Private Gump, what is your job? He says, to do whatever you tell me to do, sergeant. <laughs> you guys, you're a genius. <laughs> I just do what you want me to do. Duh. <laughs> yeah. People like conspiracies, and they like to have Oh, we love conspiracies, yeah. ...than it is. And I think, uh, you know, these are things your doctor will tell you. These are things the government is hiding from you. Yes. Yes. I know, you know, this isn't what your church really believes. You're, you're being tricked. Yeah, those well, brethren are really... This, they've done a real good job for 50-some years with me, if you know what they're... You know, if only, a, think about it, if only a core group of our church believes something else, why are they teaching every, all the other million something else? Well, it, things don't make sense. But people want this. They just, they just crave something that maybe, aha. You, you know we really didn't go to the moon. <laughs> we really didn't go to the moon. Now, I understand it is the secret too big to keep. In a day where somebody could get a multi-million dollar book deal if you've got the inside scoop on where it was really filmed in New Mexico. But I have a good friend whose husband is now deceased, but he was a U.S. history professor on college level for years. And he always taught his students, in order for a conspiracy to work, Pearl Harbor, all these things, you cannot have any weak links. That's right. And think about it. Some of the things that people think are conspiracies, there is absolutely no way that somebody somewhere along the line would have spilled the beans. It just doesn't work that way. I know, I know. 9-11's the and same I, deal. I think it's a tool that Satan uses. Yeah, because it's not, we don't like plainness. We don't want the, because sometimes if you understand it, then you got to do it. you got to do some stuff you don't want to do. Really? That's hard. Yeah. So when we get to the, the next stage in our development, when we're all in the spirit world, Oh yeah, yeah. It is. It'll be really simple, and we're gonna, and and that's that's the that's why I have great hopes for the next world for a lot of people that their 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 society their their culture has taught them not to trust plainness, and then suddenly, like these guys have got, well, let's talk about the atonement. It's really it's not hard, <laughs> but but we want to make it tougher. Okay, so. Uh, let's see. I'll, let's see. I'm gonna. Let's do this. I want to. I want to hop over to the scriptures here. <coughs> let's go to. Here it is. Okay. So this, this is where this kind of gets interesting then. Again, the, the question that prompts Jacob 5 is right down here at the bottom. 17. How is it possible that these, after rejecting the, fear, the sure foundation, can ever build upon it? <laughs> okay. And then we're going to get Jacob 5. Okay. So let's go back to see what he's talking about here. Okay. In 14. 
and he's going to use there are two there are two s- symbols that I think are just really kind of cool kind of powerful that set us up for this we're going to we're going to remind ourselves here he's going to say 13 it speaks of things as they really are as manifested unto us plainly uh, we are witnesses alone, but God spoke unto the holy prophets, so it should have worked, but somewhere it got lost. It got And the cutting floor in Babylon, in Josiah's court, we don't know all the places that this stuff was taken out. But, here we are. 14. But the Jews were stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness, and they killed the prophets, and they sought for things they could not understand. Remember Paul uh, on Mars Hill accusing the, the Greeks there and the Athenians of saying, you guys are just, you want to be titillated by the next cool thing. Okay? You got all these gods and, as, and, the, and the Stoics were always like, well, we're about learning. It's not about, so we're just going to learn more. And the Epicureans in Athens were like, well, that's cool. And that one's cool. And that one's cool. Teach us something new. Cool. Okay. Watch something on Netflix. Finish the whole series on that show on Netflix. And then what do you do? Let's find another series. Let's find another show. That was a cool movie. I'm glad it came out. What's next? Okay. We're just... All right. Uh, they sought for things they could not understand. Now, he's going to say, but because of their blindness... And, and there's, such, there's a wonderful allegory here. We've, we've talked about this before, but I want, to, I want to hit it again. Because of their blindness, which blindness came from what? Looking beyond, Looking beyond the mark. Wow. All right. Um, <laughs> Looking beyond the mark. If, if we look at this, uh, let's see, how do I want to say this? I'm trying to remember if I put this in here. Yeah, okay, the mark. Yeah. So in sacrament meeting yesterday, we had a speaker who talked about uh, how two of our general authorities, one of them being our prophet, had taught that Anytime you do anything that helps anyone in their progression, that you're doing God's work. And he said that he felt that they set the bar too low. Then he talked about how he had had a conversation with someone and he, he decided that his mother had set the bar too low. And so, what I'm thinking... And I was thinking at the time was when someone thinks that doing anything isn't useful, it's not enough that you did something, uh, they're setting the bar too high. You know, people should feel good about everything they do that's good. Yeah. They shouldn't only feel good about things they do. If it's really good. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I, I like that. Okay. So, so what he's going to tell us, as we know, and, th- and this, is, this is kind of interesting here. Um, and I don't know how I put this, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it. 
this idea of the mark is actually a New Testament concept. It's a Greek concept. Okay? The idea of the mark means that in Greek, if I got that so I can. If you go into the Old Testament and you look up the word sin, and, I, and I, whenever I run into these words, I'll go back to what's called the Blue Letter Bible and I want to see what the original origin of this was. And, and sin, if you look at the word sin in the Old Testament, it means the transgression of the law. And the word means the transgression of the law. If you look at the word sin in the Greek... By the time we get into the Greek, it has a different context. It sort of means the same thing. The two kind of mean together, but together I understand a little bit better. So this is a good example. In 1 John 3, we have this phrase, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Okay? That is the Roman, or that's the, the Aramaic Hebrew version of it. Okay? But the word that is used in Greek is fascinating in that it says... The definition of sin, hamartia, means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Okay? The idea of, um, if, if I'm an archer, and I'm, and I'm trying to get in on a target, but I'm looking at the bushes on the other side of the target, where's my arrow going to go? The other side. Okay? In the same way that if anybody's ever golfed, you know, I, I can remember a number of times standing on the tee and, there, and the, the pin is over there and there's a pond between me and the pin. And I'm thinking, don't hit it in the water. Don't hit it in the water. <laughs> don't even think of the water. Just think of the green on the other side of the water. <laughs> and always, where does the ball go? In the water. It goes where we're looking. And when he talks about the idea of sin, the transgression of the law, it's like, where are we looking? The plain target's right in front of you. The plainness is right there. But we're going to complicate it. We're going to look beyond the mark. And that's where our arrow will go. So if the mark is perfection, outside the mark is imperfection, which then becomes the definition of sin. Yes. And it's interesting that the word sin, S-I-N, in Latin, is without. Yes, without hitting the mark, right? In Isaiah, he says the sin, this is very similar to your idea of the mark, is that sin is anything that prevents us from seeing the face of God. In other words, it's missing the mark, so to speak, the mark being the face of God, you know, with perfection or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Because if that, if that mark is, if the goal is to get to know God face to face, then anything we're doing contrary to that. Um, I was listening to an a interesting podcast yesterday uh, by a guy that is a uh, BYU Hawaii history professor. And he just wrote a book called uh, 
uh, forbidden love, or not, difficult, dangerous love, dangerous love, dangerous love. And, and he talks about the fact that in Hawaii, that, that if, I, if I stand up in church and I start off my talk with aloha, the rest of everybody goes what? Aloha. aloha. We're just so culturally. Well, he breaks it down and he says uh, it's made up of two parts. Alo, or alo, meaning uh, like God's breath, your breath. It is, it is you breathing. Okay? It's you. And, um, but it's, it's that breath. Okay? Uh, and, and so a lot of times for Hawaiians and Polynesians and even Eskimos and stuff like that, to get to know you, I may go uh, forehead to forehead with you or nose to nose because I've got to breathe your breath. Right, Lonnie? Okay. Um, but, but the second part of that, so that's, that's the aloe, the breath. Okay. Ha is your essence. It's who you are. It's your identity. It's you as a person. So in other words, I have to breathe your breath to know who you are. That's how I'll know. And the only way I can know that is like, oh, I get to know you. Oh, you like garlic. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Or not. Okay. I mean, that's your it's that same kind of thing. And so, so even with the idea of Moses knowing God face to face, there was a tra tradition that says, I don't, I'm not seeing him face to face. Face to face means I'm close enough I can feel his breath on my face. Okay? So the problem is, is when the white guys show up, right? In Hawaii. And, the, and they're going to, are they going to go cheek to cheek? Jowl to jowl? <laughs> you do now. Especially during COVID, right? <laughs> Okay, you're going to shake hands, which means where is your ha? That's why you're howling. It's it's a distance. Howlies have their ha is from a distance. Essence. Uh, you, the essence is far away. I don't get to know you as well. It's less for it's less personal because I don't feel your breath from a handshake from a distance. That's a howl. Ha howly. Face to face. What's that? You're more vulnerable. You're more, sure. If someone wants to stick you with a knife, it's a lot easier face to face than <laughs> arms length. It's true. It is really true. Okay, so so this whole idea then, I think it's interesting that, and I, I find fascinating that when, when uh, Jacob is going to use a New Testament term, <laughs> gives you some sense of what was maybe coming through Joseph Smith um, as a possi possible direction, I don't know. Wherefore, came because of their blindness, and their blindness came from looking beyond the mark. Okay? And they must needs fall, having their plainness taken away from them. And so then the Lord says, if you're blind, then what am I going to do? Well, delivered unto them many things which they could not understand because they wanted it. <laughs> now, I'm not sure what to do with that. I'm not sure that the Lord always is saying, if you want the pony, you really don't need the pony, but I'm going to give you a pony just so that you'll recognize you didn't need it. But there is a sense that for these guys, they, th th these are the same people that would say, we have a prophet, we have a prophet, we don't want the prophet. Give us a king instead. Like, we want a king like everybody else. 
So don't give us prophets anymore. Give us kings. Okay. Saul was, so then we get Saul, David, and Solomon and go, eh, maybe we go back to prophets. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't give us every gift we desire. Oh, heck no. <laughs> yeah, we do. Our agency allows for that, doesn't it? Our agency allows us to do, we can do all the stupid we really want to do. <laughs> we just do, right? And, and, and that's why somebody says, if there's a God in heaven, why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? Well, because God isn't going to intervene in every stupid, because then we'd be puppets. So... I'm getting ready to rob the bank and a lightning bolt comes down and walks me away. Oh, good. I'm, I, that was like a pre-crime. I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah. You know, when I was bishop, I get that question a lot. And I'd always say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the plan that was rejected. In the great yeah, yeah, that's the one we didn't want. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Now, look at where he goes with this. So if you get this sense of it, now there's another term that he's about to use. And, and this is so doctrinally rich. It is just so much fun. Now, I'm Jacob. I, Jacob, am led by the Spirit into prophesying. I'm going to tell you why they look beyond the mark and the effect of looking beyond the mark. And, again, is it a fatal, is it a fatal deal? <clears throat> Verse 15. I, Jacob, am led by the Spirit unto prophesying. I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me that, and then here comes this phrase, that by the stumbling of the Jews they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. Oh. Really? Okay. Now, this rejecting of the stone upon which they may build and have safe foundation. Uh... And then he's going to say, But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become great, and the last and only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. Okay? So, I find a quandary here, because if he's talking about the Savior, they're going to reject the Savior. Uh, but we, they, we needed for the Savior to be rejected. Oh, yeah. He, he's just prophesying that it'll happen. Okay? They're going to reject it. And, and even the Savior himself says, yeah, you're going to reject me. So I'm going to hop over here to Matthew 12. I'm sure I got this. Uh, no, I'm not going to get it. Uh, Matthew 22. So was he talking about the Savior or was he talking about uh, the Holy Spirit? Uh, hold on to that. Because I, that, I think that's a really good question. Um, this. Alright. I might have it in... Do you have, hmm. do you have it referenced? Oh, of course not. That, that would be far too easy, Wendy. Thank you for that. This will work. 
Now this will work. This will work. Okay. So, let me set this up. We've, we've talked before about the fact that there's the moment when, in the last week of his life, that the Savior comes through the, comes through the sheep gate, and he and his, and his followers pour into the temple, uh, and, and they overturn all the, 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 the money changers and all that, and they occupy the temple. It's a coup. They're, they can't run the temple without the money changers. That shuts the whole operation down. And it's a big enough group that they can kind of, then they hold like this mass sit-in. And he's teaching in the temple. And the Sadducees are going crazy. That they just can't move this guy out of here and they can't get him because the mob, is, the, 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 the followers are on his side. Okay? And, and so it's going a little bit crazy. And, and then they, so then they're trying to talk to him in front of them. And then he starts to go off and he says, let me tell you a parable. And he's going to talk about a vineyard of all things. And he says, hey, well, here's the parable. In verse 9, a certain man planted a vineyard. And then he gives it to husbandmen and he goes away. And the husbandmen take over. It's not theirs, but they take it over. They screw it up. And, and not only that, there doesn't say it says this in Matthew, but he says not only is there a vineyard, but there's a wine press and there's a tower. I mean, he's being pretty obvious, you know, what the vineyard is, right? And he's going to go, uh, so he sends servants, they beat him up. Then he sends his, his beloved son, they kill the son. Then he's, gonna, he's now going to then quote um, Isaiah 8. And, and I, I won't take the time to go into Isaiah 8, but he's really quoting Isaiah, of which these Sadducees would be really well learned. And he beheld them and he said, What is this then that is written? That's the stone the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. There's a tradition, we don't have it, and I've tried really hard to find the original... But, but somewhere we think in the, uh, in the process of building Solomon's temple that the, one of the traditions, the Jew, Jewish traditions, is that the, the cornerstone, um, the cornerstone, uh, uh, I'll show it to you. There. Interesting thing about the, the stones on, the, on Solomon's temple. Uh, by, by divine decree, you couldn't use uh, tools. There wasn't supposed to be the sound of tools carving stones on the temple mount while they were building the temple of Solomon. So they had to like carve these massive 100-ton stones and drag them up there, and then they just had to fit. And so they did it. They brought these stones there, but the workers couldn't figure out which one was the cornerstone. So the cornerstone somehow got rejected over a period of time until finally one of them stumbled over it and, went and realized after all this time, this stone that's been sitting right in the middle on top of Mount Moriah, oh, that was intended to be the cornerstone. Oh, so then they put it and now everything fits. 
Now they can put the rest of the foundation in because now it works. But it was a stone that had been sitting right under their noses for a long time while they were running around trying to figure out how to build the rest of the temple around this thing. And that, that's kind of the mythology behind that. Uh, we, don't, we, we can't get that in the scriptures, but it, it seems to be there. So, so, he's, so the Savior is sitting there with the Sadducees, and they know this story because it's in Isaiah, it's in Psalms 118. He's going to say, What is it then that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? Oh, okay, well that hits him hard. Then he's going to make this prophecy, and there's two, and listen closely to how he says this. Whomsoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken. Now, hold on. Shouldn't that read, those on whom the stone falls will be broken? Look at how he's saying it. Those on whom shall fall upon the stone shall be broken. <coughs> who, who would fall, who would trip and fall on a stone and, and get broken, have a broken arm or something? Me. Someone who's missing the mark. <laughs> Someone who's missing the mark, but who is missing the mark? There you are. Jacob tells you the Jews were blind. It's the blind that, that stumble. I'm not going to stumble if I can walk and I can see where the stones are. I walk around them. Who's going to stumble on a stone? The blind. And they trip over it and they then are broken against the stone. The stone doesn't go anywhere. It, they, they are broken against the stone. I'm thinking of another use of the word fall, as in thieves. Thieves fall upon an unsuspecting and worried traveler. Yeah. Only in this case, though, those that are fall are broken against the stone. Right. That's why it's called a stone of offense in Isaiah and, and in Psalms. It's a stone of offense, a stone of stumbling. We stumbled onto this and were broken by it. But, but the Lord is the stone. That's right. Absolutely is. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. You're going to fall in your blindness. You will stumble and fall and be broken against me. Yeah. I have two points. The first one is the Hebrew word for stone is a bend. And, it's that, it's, and the Hebrew alphabet all has right. And so a bend is Ahab, Abba father, Ben son, son of father. Stone is a way to say in Christ. The second thing is from an engineering perspective, the cornerstone was, had to be precisely square and everything was built off of it. Yes. And as just a simple note, one of the reasons that Pythagoras is remembered is because there's three, four, five triangle, which enables you to come up with a perfect square, you know. And so hmm. otherwise otherwise without that, you're moving you're moving thirty ton rocks. And you get it over here and you go, well, that's not square. <laughs> Th think about all the ancient people with OCD going. <laughs> we can't live with that. And they say, it took us seven months to drag that sucker into place. I know, but it's not square. <laughs> it can't stay. <laughs> right? 
but it but it does work if you get the cornerstone. It's like well, then we just it's plain. You just line that thing right up there. We were guessing. That's why we need to square ourselves with. Yeah, yeah. You see the image? Isn't it awesome where it sits? I, I just love how this comes together. Okay, so so what? But Jesus is gonna is gonna take it one step farther. Okay, whosoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken, but. On whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind to powder. Was there a moment when Christ ground them to powder? Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe. This, this is a future tense. It is. It is. That's, that's right. And in a sense... There came a point, like under Constantine and stuff like that, that Christianity kind of ground everybody else to powder. Okay? So, ultimately, but in the same sense, too, in the end, Christianity and, and Christ will win out. Yes. And, and he will crush all other beliefs and everything underneath him. Okay? Um, sure. Absolutely. And so, yeah, you can guess. The chief priests and the scribes from that same hour sought to lay their hands on him. They feared the people they perceived he had spoken. He had spoken this parable against them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, part's, that part's plain. <laughs> he's, not, he's not messing around. Okay, all right. So anyway, that is... So who, on that last verse, it says, For they perceived that he had spoken this parable I think they were the husbandmen in the in the one ahead. He, he, in other words, he built the vineyard and a tower, the temple, and the husbandmen thought it was theirs, and they were trying to take over. And he's like, "No, the 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 the, the, the owner's son is here, and you're trying to kill him." Well, my, my question is: Did the people also understand the parable was against the Pharisees? Oh, I have to think so. I have to think so. I got to think they were probably cheering this whole thing on. Okay. Uh, all right. So let's so let's go back to Jacob here, and we'll, we will then finish up. Okay. Now he's going to say, "Behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become great." It hasn't been seen as great to this point. This stone shall become great, and the last and only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. Then, after all of this, comes the question that finally sets up Jacob 5. Now that you have the whole context, here it finally comes. And it may not be what you think. Look Because where he goes is, Now, my beloved, how is it possible that these Jews and everybody else, having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it? Okay, wait, stop the presses. We're talking about, we might be reading through and going, yeah, they broke themselves against the stone. That's their own dang fault. Or they got ground to powder. That's their fault. You know, they, they were blind. They, yeah, they, they got theirs. Look at what Jacob's saying. He's not saying that. He's saying, yes, they will be broken. Yes, they will be ground. Yes, these things are going to happen. Yes, they are blind. And 
How is it possible that these, having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it that it may become the head of their corner? What he's saying is, one day they won't reject him. One day they will build on him. One day it will happen. Hmm. This is not a final thing. This is, it's, it's, impo- it's huge to us to think after everything they've said and done over the arch of history, one day they'll accept him. That's what, that's what he's saying. And how will that work? As crazy as that idea sounds. I think that this question that he's asking here is a logical follow-on. Okay, in 14, he says, because they don't understand. Yeah. And they don't understand yes. because they desire something different. And so, in a way, he's not making an excuse for them, but it, it is an excuse. And it, it's an explanation as to why they didn't. Right. They were blind. And, and how many times did the Savior in the Scriptures talk to, how many times did he heal the blind? You know, how many times, like in, in Sermon on the Mount, he says, if the blind are leading the blind, they both fall into the ditch. This is a really comforting question. Oh, it, it should be. It should be. Because that's why I changed the allegory. Because <laughs> at the end, the allegory is not about olive trees. That's like saying uh, the temple is about salvation. You know, the, the, it's a signpost. And it's leading our souls to where it needs to be. The, everything about the temple points to Christ. Salvation doesn't come by the temple. It comes by Christ. Well, and he's saying, here's the very cool part about all of this, is that after everything we've just talked about, these guys will be saved. One day they won't be blind. I, I heal the blind. And, he, and he's going to say that in Luke 4, in his very first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth. He's going to say, this is the day that the captives are going to be released and the blind will be made to see. And he's talking about the Sadducees as much as anybody else. I just think it's magnificent. And then he says, now, you're not sure about that? Let me grab Enos and let me bring in an allegory that will explain to you how exactly the blind one day will see and how magnificent the love of God is, and how far-reaching, and to what lengths will this God go to bring his people home? Regardless of how many times they've stumbled, I will bring them home. And it's an allegory of love, not an allegory of olive trees. Does that make sense? Okay. So, brothers and sisters, I, I, I just, like I say, it's the power of this thing that just amazes me. Uh, and it is, but the, the Jacob 5 allegory becomes much more powerful if we, if we read how Jacob is framing and setting this story up before he tells it. So there's something specific that he wants you to know. And that is the greatness and the long-suffering power of God. And how ultimately he succeeds in bringing these people back. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.